Welcome, listeners, to episode 73 of Know Your Enemy. I'm Matt Sitman, your podcast co-host, and I'm here, as always, with my great friend, Sam Adler-Bell. Hey, Sam. Hi, Matt. How are you doing today? I'm good. As we were just saying, both of us are coughing a little in the spring release of pollen. That's right. Well, we have a great episode to share with listeners. It's a little different. You know, we've had some pretty heavy, serious episodes <laughs> recently, both topically and real meat and potatoes, know your enemy stuff. This is an equally great episode, but one that was just a little more fun, I thought, and a little more about stuff happening now. Yeah. And so we had on two of our friends who are both playwrights turned TV writers, Will Arbery and Dorothy Fortenberry. Will is a writer for Succession and Dorothy is a writer for the new Apple TV Plus show Extrapolations. And so we thought, why not get them all behind mics and talk to them and see what happens? Yeah, exactly. And it turned out great. I mean, the idea was sort of like, how do you write about politics, about like contemporary, intense political issues for television? People will know Will Arbery from an episode we did several years ago now on his amazing play, Heroes of the Fourth Turning, which is about sort of young conservatives having a long conversation about God and, and politics. And Dorothy, listeners will know from two episodes we had with her, one which was about suburban mothers and politics. That was during the 2020 election run. Yes, it was. And then we also had her on for a wonderful episode we did about climate change and climate grief with another friend of the show, my friend Dan Shirell, maybe a year ago. But this episode, we're talking about TV. Yes. And uh, we do ask Dorothy to mention a little bit about her show at the start since it's brand new. It's a show set in the future and about climate change. I mean, basically, the world has not done what it needs to have done basically now yeah. to avoid the future we see in this show. And it's just, it's an interesting look at the future, again, with climate change in mind. And the show that Will writes for is Succession, which I suspect a lot of our listeners are watching. I mean, we're obsessed with it. And that comes through in the show. And for, for listeners who are really into the show, you're going to get some cool details behind the scenes on um, how yes. they thought about putting together the past few seasons and this season in particular. But for listeners who do not watch Succession, I can give you the briefest summary of what that show is about. It's basically a version of the Murdoch family. They own basically a version of Fox News, as well as a multi-billion dollar conglomerate that's family owned. And the sort of plot of the show is about the children of the Rupert Murdoch figure, Logan Roy, vying to succeed him as the head of the company. And that's four seasons of television now that's just about that problem, <laughs> the problem of succession. But I hope that even for listeners who don't watch succession, they'll get a lot out of this episode because we're, we're talking about kind of the challenge of writing these sorts of characters, conservative characters, billionaires, people engaged in some kind of political struggle, political controversy for contemporary TV audiences. And I think it's really fascinating. Well, there's one other thing to mention about this. At the end of the conversation, we do ask both Dorothy and Will about the WGA strike, the Writers Guild strike that now is happening. And I think when we recorded this with them, Sam, it had been authorized, but hadn't actually began yet. Yeah, that's right. We recorded actually appropriately enough on May Day, on May 1st. And then I think that night, 
you know, at midnight was when um, the, the writers went on strike. And so for listeners who are interested in labor politics, you're going to get a little bit of an inside look on what the stakes of that strike are, what it's like to be a TV writer today. And both of them had really fascinating things to say about the stakes of that contest. Yes, indeed. Well, we should get to it. But before we do, here's a few housekeeping items. As always, we're grateful to our partners at Descent. They sponsor the podcast. One thing they do for us is if you subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash knowyourenemy. For $10 a month, you not only get all of our bonus episodes, but you also get a free digital subscription to Descent. And so if you get that soon, you will be able to read my piece on the January 6th report in the spring issue. Yeah, and you Uh, should. So consider doing that. And of course, for $5 a month, if you subscribe to our Patreon, you get all of our great bonus episodes. You gotta subscribe. Come on. You gotta. (laughs) (laughs) As always, we want to thank our intrepid producer, Jesse Brenneman, as well as Will Epstein, who does the music for the show. All right. Shall we get to it? Yeah, let's do it. Here's our episode with Will Arbery and Dorothy Fortenberry. Two playwrights turned TV writers and great friends who we were so happy to have on. Enjoy. Enjoy. Let's get started. Welcome to Know Your Enemy, Will Arbery and Dorothy Fortenberry. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. I should say welcome back, really. Yeah, both returning guests, fan favorites. And we're here, well, among other reasons, to talk about the television shows both of you write for. Will, you're a writer for Succession. Dorothy, you're a writer for the new Apple show, Extrapolations. Will, how about I start with you? How long have you been writing for Succession? So I've been involved for two seasons now. I was involved in season three as a consultant, so I didn't do any actual writing on that one. I was there for the last month of the writer's room, and then I gave notes on the scripts. But then for season four, I was hired as a full writer and co-wrote episode six, which just aired last night. Great app. So, Will, let's get out of the way. Can you tell us who's going to win Succession? (laughs) (laughs) Definitely nothing bad will happen to Kendall. Like, he's he's in a great position. Last night went well. No comeuppance on the horizon. Just smooth sailing. I think he's really got it figured out, you know? Really wrestled his demons to the ground and is ready to run this company. Yeah, he's really come into his own. Before we uh, just start geeking out about Succession... Dorothy, I'd love for you to just introduce the listeners to Extrapolations, a show which I have watched a bunch of in the past few days and have been enjoying a lot. What is this show with this strange title that's on Apple TV? Extrapolations is the first TV show whose main focus of concern is climate change. It's a limited series, so it's eight episodes. They are interconnected, but not a conventional series. So different set of characters, different countries, different years with some sort of connective tendrils that link them. And it's an imagined near future. So it starts in 2037 and it stretches to 2070. It kind of reminded me of like when you read a book of short stories that are set in the same world and the characters have something to do with each other, but each one is kind of 
self-contained definitely on its own yeah it's a linked short stories vibe which i think has never been done in tv before and i don't know if it will be again but it was really fun to work on (laughs) creatively and i should say it was created and executive produced and many of the episodes were written and many of the episodes were directed by scott burns who's the showrunner he is very well known as the writer of the movie contagion which we all recently rewatched. <laughs> so he came up with this concept and then I was brought on board kind of in the middle of the writing process. And then I was on set in New York through pre-production and production. In Will's case, he was in a writer's room with other writers and that wasn't what your role was on this show. No, I've, I've definitely done that job on a couple of other shows, but on this show, I am an executive producer and then I was called co-showrunner. And I didn't write any of the episodes completely myself, but I was very involved in working with the writers to help them write them as well as they could and making all the different episodes kind of hang together um, because our writers were writing in isolation and didn't necessarily know what the next writer was doing. So I, I tried to keep a sense of like the whole season arc. And it is a sprawling show. I mean, I was just looking at the cast, even just the number of amazing actors and actresses in the show, the number of storylines. Yeah, it was a lot to just sort of keep in your head. Um, And then in terms of production, logistically, a lot of the challenges we faced were things like we shot out of order. So the show unfolds chronologically, but we filmed it in whatever order those actors were available So every day you'd get to work and you'd be like, what year is it? What country am I in? What did we say telephones looked like in the 2050s? Okay, well, now we're in the 2040s. Oh, no, we better make sure that the telephones in the 2040s look like the previous generation (laughs) version of something that we shot last week. Like the number of balls to keep in the air just in terms of like what was actually happening was a lot. And then, you know, also trying to make something that addresses climate change in a way, hopefully, that causes people to think about it and consider it and all of those things. So it was it was a lot to grapple with. One thing that interested me about both of these shows is that in this very particular political moment we've been living through, both shows deal with politics, sometimes directly, like actual political candidates on the shows, presidents making decisions about signing this or that piece of climate legislation or joining this international agreement. But also they take up themes like climate change or in succession, Will, the the kind of the right wing. In a recent episode when Logan was being memorialized, I couldn't believe I was actually watching a show that invoked paleo-libertarianism. Connor, who's running for president himself, says they're trying to make pops into a neocon, but he was a paleo-libertarian, maybe even an anarcho-capitalist. And I feel like that's a very knowing reference. It's it's for the, the real political nerds in the audience. It's for listeners of our show. Right. I, it feels tailored for our listeners. So, Will, for you writing for Succession, I kind of wanted to ask how you approached writing explicitly right-wing characters. Yeah, I feel like I was sort of brought into the room when I was because they were in season three cracking that president choosing episode. And I had just come off of my play Heroes of the Fourth Turning. And so there was sort of the sense that like maybe I could help with, you know, some of the specifics, (laughs) you know, what kind of words would be tossed around and what kind of people would be there. The conservative verisimilitude consultant. (laughs) Yeah. You know, those labels for what Logan is, of course, 
Logan himself wouldn't give a fuck about how they labeled him. It's not, it's not how he thinks about things. It's not what he cares about. So it's all these people sort of like, yeah, projecting upon this, this man who had an outsized influence on American conservatism while also probably not thinking that much about the meaning behind all of it. I mean, I, I do think there are hints that like he does have some itchings in his soul for like a, a deeper engagement with all of it. Like there was one like very fleeting reference in the first episode of this season where he's looking around at his birthday party and he says, you know, I thought there would be a churchman or maybe a cardinal, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> and, and there's that sort of like that desire for proximity to legitimacy, I guess. And, and of course, like in the president choosing episode, he loves that he has this power but we don't hear him ever get into any specifics about <laughs> policy. He just kind of sits back and lets it all happen in front of him. They end up choosing like the most kind of reactionary person, but it's not necessarily clear they choose him because they agree with his ideology as much as because they think he'll make good television. Yeah, that's what Roman says. He's like, he, he's box office dad, you know, and and then in last night's episode, when he's talking to the concerned liberal studio executive, he says Mencken's IP, just like everything else. You know, I think there's the real sense that what they're looking for is the strongest possible contrarian or opposition to the rest of it. You know, like that that pirate mentality that he articulates in the second episode. So, yeah, that sort of makes my job feel really fun when it comes to what words they throw out because you can be super specific and they are sort of like Easter eggs for people who do follow these sorts of things, but they also have like very little bearing on what actually happens in the business <laughs> plot of the show. Just for listeners, we're talking about on the show Succession, the the characters named Jared Mencken. He's like a right-wing congressman, a bit of a bomb thrower. Justin Kirk is the actor. And that's just who we're talking about. So the way that Will was sort of describing writing about politics on succession is that basically none of the protagonists have sincere politics. It's all cynicism. I felt watching extrapolations that one of the challenges had to be that you have to write characters who have sincere politics. And the danger is, you know, just not wanting it to be too preachy, to have like these prophetic characters who are truth-seeking and honest about what's wrong with the world. And that just seems like a, a different and I think much larger challenge than writing people who cynically deploy political ideologies, but who are mostly just concerned about their bottom line. Is that something that you thought about while writing and working on the show? Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, I, I think it's really, really hard to make something that is sincere not seem cringy. And I think a huge problem with so much of the way that climate change has been talked about for the last several decades is it's been done in such a way as to make individuals feel a little bit more shitty about themselves. Like the, the goal has been to be like, how can you just feel a little worse about the lunch that you just ate and the shower that you just took and like the sort of basic aspects of your daily life? Like what if you just approach them with slightly more guilt and shame that's a really unpleasant narrative space to be in. So I think we were trying to make something that was entertaining, that was interesting, that did not leave people with a sort of 
pit in their stomach about their own choices. But it was really challenging. And I think we we tried to get around that fear of seeming preachy or cringy in a couple of ways. One of them was to have characters who were genuinely conflicted, like the rabbi that David Diggs plays in episodes one and three is a pretty good guy who wants to be a good guy and do the good guy things and make the good guy choices, but is still caught in conflicting goods. You know, in his desire to do one set of good things, he risks doing a set of bad things. And I think trying to not have anybody exempt from those those tensions and those pushes and pulls, trying to have people have a sense of humor about themselves, all of those are ways to have it not seem like a PSA, right? Like you don't, you don't want to make like an eight hour long PSA. Um, <laughs> like that, w- that would just be awful. It is challenging though, because villains get good lines. Like nobody remembers yes. anything Tom Cruise said in A Few Good Men. Like right. none of it. Exactly. <laughs> like, like the whole movie. That's a good way to put it. He has lots of lines and anything anyone remembers was said by Jack Nicholson because that's such a delightful and delicious and wonderful character who's advocating like horrible vigilante justice and a bleak worldview. So it's tricky to make a show about good people doing good things. Well, could I just say about that, the third episode, I was like, I can't believe this hasn't been done before. Setting a sort of climate disaster scenario basically around the Seder, (laughs) around the plagues. It kind of felt like, of course, this is such a fruitful way to get into thinking about sort of narratives of guilt and accountability and liberation and survival by centering this kind of cli-fi, you know, climate science fiction plot around a Jewish community. Thank you. I, I loved working on that episode. And I, I do think the question of we seem to be sinning and then experiencing natural disasters is not like a new question. <laughs> so I think trying to understand that people have faced this before and grappled with it before is maybe a way to begin to think about how we might think about it now. Yeah, and as a younger brother to a very strong-willed, curious, and moral Jewish sister named Alana, I enjoyed that character a lot. Uh, Well, Dorothy, I wanted to follow up from Sam's question, because that third episode where, you know, a, a rabbi and especially a young woman in the congregation or who joins the congregation who comes to him with these very pressing questions, kind of existential questions about well, God's character raised by the situation in the world, the extent of the havoc that climate change has wrought, you know, the lives it's upending and the kind of big questions it raises. It was interesting to me because right now, from our perspective today, I think of something like Pope Francis's Laudato Si, a document I know you're partial to as well. But it's kind of like my faith relates to climate change, at least in, in this case with Pope Francis and and you know his kind of commitment to our common home and, and fighting climate change. It's like, okay, like my faith is telling us to take some kind of action now. It's related to doing good things right now. And it, it's related to the climate crisis in that sense. It's sort of a source of hope maybe, but religious faith a few decades hence might kind of factor into the way people think about these things differently than it does now. Questions like, you know, how does a a loving God who cares about the world allow this much devastation? I thought it was a pretty sensitive look at what a very earnest religious young person, which I once was, might bring to 
these problems. I just sort of wondered how you thought about writing those parts of especially that episode. I mean, I think religion and climate change are these two spaces where we hold the whole globe and all the living things upon it in our head. And there aren't like a ton of times that we do that, right? You know, that you just are trying to conceptualize like every alive thing. And climate change is something that affects every alive thing. And, you know, if you believe in a God who made all the things, like trying to see the world from a God perspective involves like holding all of those things in your head. So I I think they dovetail with each other pretty easily. And I will say that was an episode where the odd process of television writing, which is collective and collaborative and iterative in a way that some other types of writing are not. Like people rewrite each other's drafts, people give notes, the studio gives notes, the network gives notes, actors gives notes. It's just a weird way to write something. (laughs) But I do think in that episode, something kind of special happened, which is that Scott had had the idea for the episode um, and he had worked with another writer on it before I joined the project. And he brought some things from his own life, his childhood, his own bar mitzvah process his own relationship with Judaism and organized religion. And then I brought my stuff, which is Laudato Si. There should be an air horn when Laudato Si uh, <laughs> is invoked and Dorothy's on the podcast. Yeah, so like I, I feel like that was a situation where the combination of all of our varying points of view and perspectives actually kind of added up to something that I think neither of us would have made on our own. And then, you know, Greg, the director, he also had his own perspectives and his own personal history with organized religion and his own relationship to parenthood and all kinds of things. So we all just kind of folded our own stuff in there in different ways. I think we were trying to make an episode that somebody who is religious could watch and feel not made fun of, not demeaned, not that it's preposterous to believe in some kind of loving God in the midst of climate change while also making an episode that makes it very clear that that can be really hard. And it's not immediately clear that, you know, it would be the easiest thing to believe in somebody looking out for you in the midst of climate change and and make an episode that somebody who has no history with any kind of, you know, faith practice of any sort could also watch and enjoy and not feel excluded from. I feel like when you do TV, you're always trying to do this combination of being specific enough that people who know what you're talking about will go like, ah, yes, paleocon, or, you know, ah, yes, the plagues. But then also people who don't know can still kind of follow along and enjoy the storytelling. Well, I would say that one thing as the Jew on the pod today that I thought was probably the most interesting moment in terms of the specifically Jewish character of the questions that are being asked. I also like that the the episode's called The Fifth Question. So the four questions during the Seder, Alana asked the fifth question, which is all of the questions that we've already been talking about, like, are we being punished, basically? But the moment where the rabbi has kind of compromised his morals in order to try to save the synagogue from flooding, basically, to be included in a sort of plan the city has for saving certain buildings. This is in Miami. In Miami, yeah, yeah. He starts, you know, a service by saying, you know, in moments like these, we're inclined to think about the meaning of being a chosen people. And then he says, chosen for what? His answer is, in that moment, to survive. Chosen to survive. But, you know, as a Jew, I do think that there's a lot of parts of the Jewish community, Jewish institutions, 
mainstream Judaism in America, which would answer the question that way too. What, what are we chosen people to do? We're chosen to survive. And survival has a moral character for the Jews, for good reason. But I'm also inclined to say that we should be chosen for more than just survival. And that's kind of the question of the show too. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. And I think the journey of that episode from this focus on preservation, this focus on we have to preserve what we have, at the end of it, there's been so much destruction, there isn't anything left to preserve that is a structure, but there still are things we can preserve, which are the ways we treat each other. And so I think that's kind of the journey that the episode traces is it's not to say that there is not value in trying to preserve old, beautiful religious buildings, you know, places people use, like those things have meaning and purpose. But also it's not just about survival. It's also about like, what is it that we are doing? How are we treating each other? How are we looking at each other? And sort of collapsing in the episode from the perspective of we are here to help displaced people, homeless people who are an other who we are going to be kind to, to like, oh, no, we have joined them. (laughs) Like, we are displaced people. We are homeless people. We are, in fact, experiencing solidarity and a shared identity instead of the sort of benevolent helper. Mm -hmm. Well, Will, while Dorothy was speaking, she mentioned the kind of struggle to not write characters who are too cringe or too PSA. But I was thinking that some of the characters in Succession, they are cringe, Right uh, <laughs> on purpose. Yeah, I mean, we think of Kendall. Various you know, moments of his in the show have been quite cringe. Even when you mentioned that you know some of these terms like paleo libertarian, you know, uh, these might not be words that the characters like that Logan Roy would apply to himself, or that even some of the the viewers would would necessarily know. And I thought, you know, these are characters who say words all the time. I'm not sure they really know what they mean. You know, whenever Kendall <laughs> goes on a kind of rip, you know, that's like a string of kind of business lingo. <laughs> and so I, I guess, you know, maybe a different challenge for you would be writing characters who are cringe, but, you know, getting the cringe right. Yeah, it reminds me of, there's like a whole refrain in last night's episode that there's a lot of like how are the words the words are words the words are good you know and then that other the accountant's line that's like numbers aren't just numbers they're numbers <laughs> you know like there's <laughs> there's the, like both words and numbers in this episode are taking on this kind of like fictive quality like you can kind of just throw things out there and just see what happens, you know, Kendall has that line about like, it kind of makes you lose your faith in capitalism because you can kind of just say anything. And I think, I mean, the tone of all of it is really determined by Jesse Armstrong. You know, he's he's a Brit, you know, like he studied the history of, of America and America and politics in college. So it's like his a deep, deep fascination for him. But he also has, you know, this outsider's view and he cares very deeply about verisimilitude and and accuracy and he wants to get the you know the perfect obscure reference into the right moments but you know he he always has this very hilarious sort of zoom out attitude towards these characters when they take on too much self-importance i guess a word that he uses a lot is grubby. He loves to remind us that they're very grubby, like that they just want power, you know? And so I think that that creates a really, really fun sandbox for someone like me who does write much more sincerely. Like the show that I was writing, 
over the pandemic about, you know, a small conservative magazine in New York, which both of you read a draft of and were very helpful and gave me good notes on. Such a great script. <laughs> Thanks. You're listening. I, Executives <laughs> who, of course, listen to our podcast. It's an incredibly great script. You know, the, the whole provocation of that show is that at least for a core group of the central characters, like the belief is very real and very urgent. And then they have to make alliances with people who only care about themselves or only care about power. Like the, that sort of unholy fusion that has to occur in American conservative politics between belief and, and, and power. So, you know, I was bringing, especially in this season, coming off the heels of working on my own show for so long, I was bringing a lot of that into it. And it was a cool challenge to sort of enter fully the other side of things. Let's have the entry point be the people who, who care about power and find these little cracks and moments of genuine, if not belief, then like curiosity. Like I think Connor has real, you know, he was interested in politics from a very young age. That's the thing he says about himself. <laughs> I think it's true. Like he's interested. <laughs> you know? But I think what's so brilliant about the way Jesse has, has conceived of politics place in the show though, is that like as funny as it can be and how sort of niche the, references can be there's also like a tremendous sense of like dread and menace underneath everything that sort of completely destabilizing feeling that like these are the people who are making decisions that have such tremendous influence over the future of the country like that's something that is gonna get explored in the rest of the season and i i think hopefully to really chilling effect. I just wanted to add, thinking about these two shows together, there's a way in which I thought back to, uh, was it season two or season three, where Logan's brother, Ewan, is talking to Cousin Greg, and he at one point says that Logan, if you factor in climate change and kind of the role that his news network had played in in downplaying it, that he could be one of the most vile human beings or, or you know, accountable for more suffering than even Hitler. And I thought that, you know, in a, in a strange way, Dorothy's show takes place like in the world that Logan Roy helped build. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. I mean, I, something that I get asked a lot because I'm talking about this show with various people and people be like, oh, isn't it crazy to have the first television program about climate change on the air? And I'll always say, well, there's been a television program about climate change on the air for 20 years. It's just been a conservative program about climate change saying it's controversial and not a problem. It's been super successful, keeps getting renewed, <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> lots of fans. It's not that there hasn't been climate messaging, it's that there's been climate messaging in the direction of this is unknowable and therefore it's controversial and therefore polite people shouldn't discuss it. And I, I mean, I, I think one of the themes, you know, in extrapolations over the course of time is the failure of institutions and the sort of hollowness or brittleness within them. And I feel like succession gets at that in a different kind of way, but you, you see the somewhat preposterous people, you know, doing somewhat preposterous things, but moving real dollars. We have, you know, scenes at the UN, we have scenes in the Oval Office, we show these kind of corridors of power and they think the people within them are sincere, but they're also kind of hapless. Like they get steamrolled by billionaires pretty frequently. And that feels like it's a way of saying that 
just because you have an institution that's supposed to come together and make an agreement about climate change, if, for example, the UN decides to, for example, hold that meeting in, for example, Dubai, perhaps the agreements you'll come to will not be as rigorous on the oil and gas industry as they might be. You know, like we're trying to show that even with well-meaning, sincere people, if the institutions are toothless, there's a real limit to what they can get up to. Right. Well, I want to ask a question, and I think it applies to both shows. But so basically, there's a great moment in Extrapolations. I forget which episode it is. One of the first few where somebody says, we're not gods. We're just parents and children. (laughs) Episode four and Ed Norton. Ed Norton says that. Yes, yes, yes. And I was struck watching every single episode I watched of Extrapolations, which is nominally a show about a climate change altered future and people trying to deal with it. Every single one was about parents and children. Every single one. (laughs) And, you know, that line, we're not gods, we're just parents and children, could be a kind of thesis for the show or kind of an epigraph for it. But it's also a message that the Roy family could really use to hear. (laughs) (laughs) You're not gods. You're just parents and children. And I am struck by actually just how sophisticated, sort of emotionally and psychologically rich the portrait of this family is on Succession and how that's really what that show is about. It's about parents and children and what they do to each other, particularly what parents do to children and then the patterns of pain that they inflict on the people around them and on themselves as a result of that. And these are both shows to me about parents and children. And I know that both of you think about that stuff quite a lot. Dorothy, you have kids. Will, I feel like when we we had you on the last time to talk about your play, we were talking a lot about your family and kind of growing up around people who held very sincerely these sort of traditionalist, conservative, religious beliefs. I want to open the floor for a conversation about (laughs) why it is that these shows are, while sort of nominally about power and politics, are in essence about parents and children and how each of you have thought about that. I'll jump off, which is, I don't know, Will, if you follow parenting influencers uh, in your life, um, in your social media life. (laughs) There is one that my friend showed me that was really funny. Speaking of cringe. It's a, it's a horrifying subworld that I'm totally obsessed with, but there is a woman who shows up in sponsored ads on my feed, whose whole thing is using episodes of succession to do parenting influencing. Oh my God. God. She'll break down every episode and she'll show like a little clip of like some sort of demeaning exchange or like pitting two kids against each other or playing favorites or, you know, saying rude things to your child. And she's like, don't do this. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) <laughs> like that's the entire shtick i i find it fat like i always click right which is why they keep showing up for me because some part of me only wants to watch the show understood purely through the lens of people who might take it as parenting advice but i think part of what it it gets to is the unescapable feeling that our our problems are so much bigger than anybody else's and I, I do feel like to me, at least when I watch like the family dynamics of that show play out, like that's the thing that I I relate to is everybody just feels so special in their pain. 
And they're not, right? Like lots of people have mean dads. Lots of people have jerky older brothers or hapless siblings. Like it's it's not actually that special a situation, but for the people in it, I think it always feels to them as though like this is the most. This is the most anyone has ever been hurt. This is the most anyone has ever triumphed. They're having like an operatic experience of their own feelings. And I think that to me is is so relatable because like when we're in those situations with our parents or with our kids, it feels like, you know, the first time anybody has ever done any of these things, even though they're all incredibly common. But like the experience of them is is gigantic. And like watching adult children just have no shame in accessing their like most childish impulses is sort of fantastic. Yeah. And and the big criticism, I guess, or, or just the thing that you would hear a lot about the show when it first came out was like, oh, but, you know, I don't like any of them. They're all such terrible people. And somehow we've gotten to the point that in, in this last season, the kids spoiler alert finding out about their father's death, you know, suddenly there's this outpouring of people saying like, that was this incredibly hyper-realistic portrayal of, of what it's like to, to deal with that in real time and the, the shock of that and, and all the little nuances of it. So suddenly these characters who felt at such a despicable remove are now like stirring people's <laughs> hearts at a very like deep level, which I, I think is just part of it is like the what you're talking about, Dorothy, like the bigness of who they think they are and, and the uniqueness and, and specialness that they've sort of inherited like they're used to having the most of everything and and (laughs) and somehow that has created this incredible scarcity of i don't know what the word is but well you can say love if you want (laughs) it's okay a scarcity of love absolutely there's like a, a, a desert where there should be a growing forest and so that when these very human universal moments hit them there's such a like a, a beautiful naivete to the way that they're experiencing it. It's like watching almost like a child go through something and you can't help but feel for them. Like they're cracking open into actual life and the actual inescapable facts of life. Like Roman has a line in the last episode, that death just feels very one size fits all, which, you know. <laughs> feels very undad. Yeah, it's very undad of him to die. Yeah, because part of the sort of assumption that they grew up with was maybe there's a way that we won't have to do any of that. Like the the normal stuff that normal people go through, like dying, you know, yeah. or grieving. Yeah. Well, it's kind of undad of all dads to die. <laughs> <laughs> I want to press down on the the bruise of the family even further here. Because part of what we're saying about succession is that they are the most sympathetic and the most human and the most humane when they are experiencing the normal universal traumas of the family together. You know, I mean, the sweetest thing about the show, and it has sweetness, is that despite what one might expect the Roys really love each other. They're cruel to each other, but they're capable of cruelty because they love each other. They also hang out all the time. They're always together. Who do you know who sees their adult siblings anywhere close to that much? And that's a choice. They have, from our perspective, unlimited wealth. They could go off and do anything. anything, No, and they just want to hang out with their siblings. They just want to hang out 
and replay the traumas of their childhood forever <laughs> um, <laughs> and try to resolve them. Like slightly bigger toys. With slightly bigger toys, exactly, yeah. And that's the sweet thing about the show, and that's when they become the most human. But I think what comes through in extrapolations is that familial love is maybe, you know, it's the most at-hand access we all have to something approaching the kind of love that scriptures talk about. <laughs> I'm out of my depth there, but also the kind of love that might be sufficiently healing to solve so many of our political problems. But it also isn't enough, right? Like that's kind of the lesson that like familial love can lead people to have a little platoon and protect themselves from the rising waters and only protect their family and their progeny. I mean, obviously the right, you know, the GOP wants to be the party of the family and they are in, invoking familial love and sort of the investment people instinctively have in their children and their loved ones toward lots of projects that I think are evil, <laughs> awful. And so I think it's, it's right that Extrapolation should be a show that's mostly about parents and children who are not gods. But that kind of paradox of, of the family as sort of what feels like this potentially the source of the sort of love that we need, but also can lead us to isolating the opposite of solidarity. I mean, I think there was a real vogue for making shows about a bleak apocalypse. Certainly in the last 20 years, there are so many zombie shows, so many, the world has been totally destroyed shows. And one of the things about the constraints of an apocalypse, when you come in after the apocalypse has happened, is that you really can focus on a small group of people. And the concerns of your characters really are, do we have enough water? Can we defend ourselves? Do we have sufficient weapons? You know, whether it's an actual nuclear family or whether it's sort of a ragtag band of survivors, you're modeling this very small unit facing a hostile outside world who needs to be very fully armed and constantly at risk of immediate physical threat. Like, I think that has a particular politics. I don't know that those shows were created to advance us out of politics, but I, I certainly think if what you're doing imaginatively is like, well, you're hunkered down with five people and you have a ton of weapons and everyone outside you wants to kill you at all times, all your choices come from that set of givens, it definitely creates a particular worldview. The kind of atmosphere created by those shows is that it's admirable to be dedicated over and above any other concern for those people that you're with. Completely. And somebody makes a wrong turn in your driveway, like, of course you kill them. Like, they might have killed your family. Like, yeah. of course you do. So part of the reason I was excited to join Extrapolations was that it wasn't taking place after the apocalypse. It was an mm. ongoing sort of slow apocalypse where things got worse, but they didn't completely dissolve into a, a total anarchy and a total end of functional systems. I, I really wanted to be a part of a show that wasn't saying, like, we're all just hunkering down. We have nothing to take care of except our immediate kin, every person for themselves. But I also think even in a slow rolling, non-completely -co collapsed apocalypse, there still can be a tendency to want to focus on those most immediate relationships. And I do think we tried 
in series to show where is the tension in that. Like there's a character in the pilot who has to decide between going to be with his wife who's having a baby or being at the UN negotiating the terms of temperature rise. I don't know what the right choice is. I think we are trying to say that it's not enough to go be with the immediate people that you're with, trying to look beyond it, but then also maybe trying to use our experiences of the family, especially our positive experiences of the family, as a way to metaphorically imagine what it might be like to feel close to someone else. So like the the most concrete example of this is like Tiana Miller befriends a whale um, in episode two and, yeah. uh, you know, ta- talks, <laughs> gives it her mother's voice. Exactly. And gives it her mother's voice, which is like, obviously her working out her own issues, right? Like, it's not that she had like a flawless relationship with her mom and this is easy for her. It's that like her mom died very much in the midst of conflict. It was unresolved. She does not feel like they're, they're done with each other. She can't generate an AI giant screen head of her mom, but she does in a sort of similar way, like reincarnate this parent who passed before she felt at peace with it in an effort to try to work out like ongoing generational issues. And I think part of what we're trying to say is that like, if you imagine that your family relationship and the intensity of your family relationship could be felt towards other people or other species, you know, what might that feel like if you extended the circle of concern? It's funny when you were describing kind of how the post-apocalyptic sort of family is constructed, this kind of stand your ground on behalf of your little unit ideology that those shows events, whether or not it's on purpose, that's kind of what the Roy's experience always, you know, (laughs) they are the only people that matter. Like they are literally the only people that matter. And it's just interesting to think about the idea, which I'm very sympathetic to, which is that like the very, very wealthy have an incapacity when it comes to empathy because it's not required of them. You don't have to inhabit the the mind of another person because that person can never hurt you. That person can never dominate you. And you don't need other people in the way that working class people do, poor people do always. You need the support of your community in order to survive. And so the very, very wealthy are like living in the post-apocalyptic future already. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it it was really fun to, to build the living plus sort of like mission statement or to have Kendall sort of in this like whirlwind of grief and trying to also position himself well in the battle for <laughs> succession in the battle for succession yeah. <laughs> oh yeah that's what it's called yeah <laughs> and that living plus which kendall is pitching to shareholders in the most recent episode is basically a planned residential living project by waystar royco the roy's company and it's sort of the the tagline is it's a, it's the cruise ship experience on dry land yeah to to sort of be like building out this vision for this community and and like it he really plays up security and safety and the world getting scarier and crazier and like that this could be a place to feel safe and protected and right. for your children to visit and to never want to leave and, and your grandchildren to want to grow up. And, and, and it's like he's simultaneously like trying to imagine what, a, you know, quote unquote, like ATN citizen would like respond to like a normal person who lives in Florida or Arizona or whatever and, and like would want to subscribe to one of these communities. But there is also very clearly this personal sort of longing on display 
that almost like he's like accessing like what was good about the way he grew up like the the sort of like the the feeling of being like ensconced in a fortress or something you know right we're besieged on all sides but we're together (laughs) yeah exactly and like and and like what you guys are saying like that sort of 24 hour access to like your your core family it's like this sort of perverse version of of that that he's kind of offering like to 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 everyone i mean will what do you think about i mean maybe more than once but at least at one very notable point in succession logan says that everything he did and is doing he does for his kids how true do you think that was hmm i i think it's true you know especially when you think of his kids as being extensions of himself you know and like the legacy that he'll he'll leave behind you know i it's hard to say because it also like you know there's what jesse thinks but then all of these actors have like incredibly nuanced takes on their own characters i noticed that when hannah and i watch the show we always end up watching the like post-show thing which is a silly thing but then you see the the actors they have like such a specific realized vision of what this character's motivations are to a degree i'm not sure is always true right yeah i mean it's it's one of those things where like, to say whether i agree or disagree with <laughs> with logan when he says that is like you know it almost feels like well it's brian's choice to make. <laughs> and he has said that that you know it is true that he does do it for his kids and that's like a yeah. really really core principle for the way that he's played the character and that just sort of can throw the audience for a loop but also cause them to to dig in and and look at how that could possibly be true. <laughs> yeah, and people people can delude themselves. Like Logan might have convinced himself that's really true, you know, uh, whether it is or not. Maybe is a different question. Yeah. But it's it's you know we all tell ourselves things to keep moving forward. I mean, the thing that Brian constantly points out in interviews is like he does do it for them. It's just that none of them are stepping up in the way that they would need to in order to carry this thing forward. And so he's like constantly forced to stay in the game and then of course us watching it we see you know this is someone who's really addicted to this way of living and can't quit hollywood is full of people who would tell you that you know everything they're doing is for their kids or like they would kill people for their kids but like they hmm. won't end the room at five thirty so they can see their kids right so like <laughs> 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 you can you can have this notion of your children as as a project while also not getting a chance to actually hang out with them as an individual and i, I think that's part part of what you know the the ed norton episode and extrapolations is like he talks about you know parents and children as these abstract things but like he can't make any actual connection with his actual son like his son is much closer to his ex-wife than to him so like we have like the notion of children and I think in climate change this gets bandied about too about like you know this is for your kids or your grandkids as a way to sort of understand the future but that can also get really abstract and maybe kind of pass the buck a little bit to some kind of idealized notion. So telling yourself you're doing something for your children um, may or may not have anything to do with who your children actually are at any given moment. And I think succession being so much, I think about the cyclical nature of, of abuse and that can also take the form of indifference. And and if you look at how little, you know, Logan's grandchildren are invested in, you know, by Kendall, you know, even like Shiv's pregnancy and how, strangely she's treating that like it's it's 
I think indicative of exactly that thing that Dorothy just described. Like they'll become a project when they need to become a project. I have a question about that and related to the fact that the show is kind of about these repetitive cycles of abuse and trauma and kind of even just, I mean, when I wrote about the show, I wrote a review of the third season for The Nation where my basic thesis was that it's repetitiveness is inherent to its themes, basically. Like, that these are people who do not change. The source of the tragedy and the comedy of the show is that they don't change. They can't change. They keep setting the same plot in motion, basically, to try to kill their father, but fail to do so because of the wounds that he's inflicted on them. (laughs) And what's fascinating about the fourth season is that it has to change, you know? Logan dies. The kids take over. And I'd be interested to hear from you about that challenge. How do you satisfyingly wrap up a show where basically the main point is that this self-inflicted cycle of suffering never ends? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's exactly what you're saying, Sam. I mean, th- like there are a lot of iterative, cyclical storylines that you could get out of these siblings, even in the wake of Logan's death. Like You could almost go back through everything we'd seen so far and see the sort of warped ways they play out those same dynamics on each other. But the, you know, the problem is, is that they've, they've been doing that already. <laughs> they've already, <laughs> they've already been hurting each other. And so, yeah, I mean, it, to, to say more would be to betray some of the beautiful choices that, that get made in the, in the rest of the season. Sure. But I do think Jesse did a really good job of threading the needle. Uh, yeah. Maybe, maybe a similar question about extrapolations. I, will admit that I have not watched the last episode. But one of the things that struck me about the show is that, like, it's in the future. It's in a bunch of different futures. But the kind of attitudes that the characters have are very familiar. The show does not depict, at least the episodes that I've watched, a fundamentally changed way of thinking about the world, thinking about our responsibilities to it. You know, there's a really rich character who's trying to benefit from climate change, but also maybe do geoengineering so that everybody can keep doing the same thing. There's a sort of repetition compulsion that is kind of the nature of the problem of climate change, right? Yeah. (laughs) Just as there's a repetition compulsion that defines the Roy's. And so the question of how do you resolve it at the end of it is sort of a similar question. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think part of our beginning set of given circumstances was to say, what if we don't change very much? What will change if we don't change, right? Because part of the conceptual difficulty of climate change is that it requires you holding in your head the idea that if human behavior stays static, everything around that human behavior starts shifting. So people, you know, keep using the same materials to build houses and to have in their stoves and to drive their cars and, you know, to be on their private jets and all of that. Going to the same synagogue every week, at one point, you will have to start wearing boots. Because the water is literally rising. Because water is literally rising and you're having sunny day flooding in South Florida. So that was kind of the framework that we went into the episodes was if one set of human behaviors stays static when we continue on our current trajectory in terms of denial and behavior and kicking the can down the road and delay and all that stuff. What are all the other things that are going to start changing in the wake of that stasis? And so I think the fact that it felt familiar to you was very much our goal. And especially when we were doing things like the props and the costumes, we didn't want to have it be like a futury future. Like it's not like everybody gets a silver lame 
jumpsuit. (laughs) (laughs) It's not that kind of a future. And so, you know, we have characters in episode five who are in Mumbai and the creative conceit behind that, that Rajiv Joseph, who wrote that episode, came up with is it's become an entirely nocturnal society. It's just too hot during daylight for things to happen. So everybody's shifted and they nap during the day and they work and they conduct business at night. But with that big shift, the sandals people are wearing and the shirts people are wearing and the motorbikes are driving, like that's all pretty the same. So there's one big shift and then a lot of similarity. That was the favorite of the episodes that I watched. Yeah, I love that episode. I think Rajiv did a Beautiful job with the script. Richie Meadow is the director. He's incredible. Working with both of them was a dream. I love, love, love that episode. And I think it gets at something where their dynamic, their friendship, their emotional connection is very similar. And it you know, reminds us of a lot of relationships that we have. It's just playing out in this backdrop where like, you don't go outside during the day. So I think what we were trying to get at was harnessing both a sense of the familiar and the unfamiliar in an attempt to say that to avoid this kind of an outcome, to avoid the outcome where you have to wear boots when you go to religious services, something else will have to change. <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. there will have to be some sort of, you know, you, you will have to look at a wind turbine out your window. No, I'm sorry. No, I won't do it. <laughs> right? Like you'll have to either look at a wind turbine or look out your window at a multifamily apartment building or, you know, look out your window at something that's not currently there in order to keep anything else the same. Right. To the point about sort of repetition, I also think, you know, television's a repetitive medium. And that's part of why you either have a sitcom format where there's no hugging and no learning and we just show up next week and like Seinfeld is Seinfeld and George is George. And like the joy is that they don't get better and they don't change and, and their compulsions remain their compulsions and they never learn any lessons and they're just as, you know, petty and narcissistic as they were the week before, or it's a hospital or a cop or a lawyer or one of those shows where so much of the episode is based on the case of the week that you can burn through a ton of story and not have crazy things happen to your main characters because your main characters are just dealing with the crisis that has showed up for them. But with a serialized show where there's not a crisis of the week, you do run the risk of like your characters either becoming boring or your characters becoming goofy, or your characters becoming psychopaths. (laughs) (laughs) Unless they start as psychopaths, as in the case of Succession. But like behavior that could be excusable or interesting once done multiple times over multiple years starts just to have a different valence. And so I, I, I think it's a real challenge. There's been this sort of explosion with streaming and everything else of shows that are serialized but aren't Dr. Lawyer Cop shows, but those shows then have this challenge of like, can we maintain this pitch and this pace without becoming either goofy or boring or immoral? Right. If a whole season of Law and Order was like dropped on Netflix, you'd watch it and be like, wow, this is the same shit over and over again. (laughs) Totally. I mean, that was, Dorothy, I think one of the things about the show to just kind of echo Sam that I love the most is the way it doesn't posit, as you were mentioning earlier, like a post-apocalyptic landscape, right? Where there's been some just, you know, cataclysmic event that changes everything. And that combination of the familiar with kind of the new or where climate change took the world, that was one of the things that was very 
I thought persuasive and kind of compelling to me about the show. And it's a pre-apocalyptic show. Yes. And it, you know, it strikes me that kind of in comparison to Succession, we already mentioned like the characters on that show don't really change in some ways. I was wondering, you know, as you were thinking about that with extrapolations, was that kind of lack of change the way we just kind of, when facing the climate catastrophe, just kind of kept muddling through and never really fundamentally changing or adapting as you were writing, working on the show, did you think of that more as in terms of like personal psychological characteristics or something like about politics and the political system? You know, like, is it, is this like a feature of just like human nature, if I can put it that way? Or, or is there kind of a more fundamentally political story at work kind of in the background of, of extrapolations? I, I have an answer. I don't know that my answer would be the same as, as Scott's, but for me, my answer would be that the position of the show is that the limitations of our abilities really butt up against the institutions that we've built to contain them. So when you see something like the UN get co-opted by this billionaire in episode one, it's saying that our personal instincts are not terrible. Like a lot of characters in that episode have, you know, good instincts and they're battling multiple goods, but they're trying to do the right thing and they understand the science and their heart's in the right place. But in the face of an incredibly powerful individual who has pretty unconstrained influence, that is insufficient if the institution that those well-meaning people are operating within is itself flimsy and sclerotic and disorganized. And I think the show's perspective on something like the United States government is the same. There's a president played by Cherry Jones. Overlap with succession. Overlap with succession. But but that, that president character is not like a, a cynical, total power-hungry monster who doesn't care, but she feels like the United States political system that she is operating within, the Congress that she is facing, the filibuster, gerrymandering, like pick your thing, has left her no choices. That she she is faced with a sea of poor choices because of institutional design, institutional failure, gerontocracy, like pick your thing. But she's left with this sort of flawed, brittle, non-functioning instrument to try to enact her pretty good, decent will upon. And I think that's sort of the point of view of the show is that individual perspective, individual commitment and awareness really matter. But we also need to have robust and functional ways to interact with each other. Because otherwise, extremely wealthy, powerful individuals can just absolutely steamroll any other individual. The only thing that's going to stand up to them is a united collection of functioning people able to make their might known together, but that requires some kind of linking device. It's not enough to all agree. Like you have to have some kind of uh, container to hold your agreement and to keep you unified while you face the really powerful individual. So I think that's what we're trying to get at. I don't know that anybody else thought that's the story that we were telling, right? Like I'll fully admit, you know, I think I'm telling a story of institutional decline. A lot of other people, maybe we're telling a different story. The thing that it's making me think about is going back to the family is that like in episode three, David Schwimmer plays the corrupt father of Alana, the character, the 13 the year old who's having her bat mitzvah and is kind of invoking the fifth question, the question of what we did wrong to deserve climate change. And what's so interesting about the, the sort of encounter between the two of them is that 
he's sort of a shameless person, but he is capable of being shamed by his child. You know, he's troubled by being shamed by her. And this is kind of, again, going back to the idea that like the family is both the space in which we can be our very best selves, like a person who is just as nasty and self-interested as the David Schwimmer character can be shamed, right, by his daughter in the way that, like, we would hope that, like, the head of some oil company could be shamed by the activists, but they aren't. And I think, again, there's a way where the impulses that prevail in the family dynamic are the resources for our capacity to change and for our capacity to stay the same. I guess that's kind of like my first principle for me at this point, <laughs> all my Freudian bullshit. But I think when you see that, the, the sort of institutional incapacity of people to change while you see their like individual desire to do so, I think that uh, however you could possibly unleash the instincts that people have at their most selfless, most generous moments, which are tend to be them when they're interacting with their children, their parents, their siblings upon the world, then maybe we'd be all right. <laughs> but the flip side is that most of what those impulses get sluiced into is the impulse to be selfish and to protect your family over and against anyone else. Like that's like an essential paradox of our politics to me. Yeah. I, I think there's also a way that family is a space for witnessing, like, and, and maybe I'm just saying this because I have an almost teenager who I feel like, you know, observes me <laughs> um, and with great, like unsparing clarity. And, yeah. and that's not like a thing that we get from a lot of our relationships. I feel like, you know, my, my friends and my colleagues are much more generous and um, forgiving, but <laughs> I think we have a, an ability to just kind of have a laser vision sometimes with the people in our family. I would say that the thing that our, our institutions need is like the ability to both have that kind of bottomless love while also being able to really hear biting criticism. <laughs> Well, the thing about the witness that your child embodies is that it's a witness who, no matter how fucking pissed you get by what they say, you have to keep the relationship intact. <laughs> yeah. Which is not the case with like somebody criticizing you who's your employee or a whistleblower or a uh, watchdog organization or whatever. I did want to ask before we close out about the impending Writers Guild of America strike, which was authorized by like, what was like 98% of the members? It was like super high. And I read today a piece in The New Yorker by Michael Shulman, the headline of which was, Why Are TV Writers So Miserable? <laughs> um, <laughs> I would be interested to hear from both of you, why are TV writers so miserable and what are the stakes of this this strike and the, what the Writers Guild wants from the contract. So yeah, it was a 97.85% yes vote, which is just extremely high. And then also a very high participation. It was a 78.79% of eligible members. So that's just a testament to the organizing. Uh, so it was a very high percentage authorized the Guild to strike if they deem necessary. And a lot of the Guild participated in the vote. One of the ways I can tell the story is about why it's come to this is a personal one, because I feel sometimes like I got kind of the last spot on the last train of the way things used to be. So when right. I came up as a TV writer, my first job was on a network show, a large series order. I was working for most of a year. I made enough money to support myself and my family. And 
I was included in all parts of the process. I was writing an episode. I was also sent to set. I was also looking at design things. I was also looking at editing. Um, I was really just thrown into all parts of the TV writing process, which was very standard under the network structure, not necessarily out of the kindness of executives' hearts, but because the need to create episodes quickly was paramount. You were always airing new episodes every week. And if you didn't have a new episode, you'd have to air like an hour of static. So like you, you know, um, whatever you needed to do to keep sort of the machine churning you did. And that included giving younger writers a lot of responsibilities. So I had a lot of producerial experience both in the room and then also on set and uh, in production. And every step along the way, I was working for a large number of weeks and making enough money to pay the bills. But that was a really unique circumstance. I know a lot of people who are working now in what are called mini rooms for a small number of weeks. And that small number of weeks means that they are both not making enough money to live on their writing alone. So they have to get, you know, other jobs and they're driving rideshare or whatever to make up the difference. But it also means that they are never getting on set. They're never getting producerial experience. They're only ever doing the the writing work and they're having to repeat that step. So there's no sort of ladder of promotions so that you can stay kind of at a lower level for many more years. Whereas I was always kind of rising every year. So I I do feel like that's changed a lot in the last 10 years. It's very much because of the switch to a predominantly streaming economy. And I think in a streaming world, there's also no residuals. So, you know, having a network show that I was on for the first three years, you know, I would get a check in the mail sometime and I still do sometimes randomly. They aired my episode in Bulgaria and, you know, they'll send me (laughs) a check. And that was really how the model worked because no one's ever going to only be on hits, you know, no one's ever going to be employed every single second. But the idea that when people air your show in reruns, if your show is successful, you get money every time that happens provides a bit of a cushion that spreads out over a career. So as long as you're on something at some point that does pretty well, you can kind of make it through the inevitable flops and failures and things that don't advance. But there are no residuals in streaming. And the streamers are very tight-fisted with their data. So like Nielsen's are public. You can open a paper newspaper and see the Nielsen ratings for last night's show. And everybody comes into the office the next morning and they understand exactly how many people watch the show. And that gives you a certain amount of power as the writers or the actors or whoever to say like, look, our show's the number one show in America. We can do the math around these numbers and determine how much money you, the studio and the network must be making from this. And here is a reasonable percentage that should go to right, us. Right, 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 right. But, you know, the streaming data, it's known by somebody. It's not like it's ungatherable. In fact, it's like sliceable and diceable and they can tell you exactly the moment where somebody switched to watching wrestling because your show got slightly boring in minute four or whatever. Like they, <laughs> they have that data, but they don't share it with you. They, they don't necessarily let you know. So you can't say, you know, like I have a friend who worked on Bridgerton. Bridgerton was this huge hit, you know, it was a cultural phenomenon, but she didn't get paid any more for it being a hit because the way the streaming contracts work, she just got paid to sit in the room, write some stuff and then walk away. So it's a situation like a lot of situations where tech is disrupting an industry. There's a huge push for constant growth. So the studios are profitable, but they don't want to just be profitable. They want to be more profitable every quarter than they were the quarter before. And I think the combination of technology and the sort of 
rapacious quest for growth is really making it hard to be a regular person writer. Succession is my first TV job. And the shift from 2019, when I was just surviving on theater, to 2020, when I got hired in season three of Succession and got like TV development deals. I mean, it was a huge, right, right, <laughs> huge right, right, right. Shift. I was just like suddenly, like I, I literally felt like <laughs> the richest man in the world. <laughs> it's like, you know, like I grew up with no money. But what I was most compelled by, in addition to everything that Dorothy just said so well, was just when I sat, sat in on the sort of member meeting about all of this and kind of what the demands of the new contract would be. Yeah, and just and and any questions anyone wanted to ask what what a strike would look like, et cetera. I was so moved by the sentiment that was repeated often, which was basically anything that writers have now, any benefits that you've enjoyed from being part of the WGA, being a working writer, was hard won and fought for by people in previous generations. And these studios will do anything they can to screw us over. (laughs) It's part of their business plan. They will get away with whatever we let them get away with. So we can't let them get away with it. Like we're not just doing this for ourselves. Now we're doing this for future generations of writers and, and that sort of sense of community and, and solidarity and, and, and writers protecting other writers was, was very moving to me and sort of like on a, spiritual level like answered any questions i might have had about what was (laughs) what was going on you know and just also sort of that feeling of like they're gonna say it's not a good time like we're doing layoffs and the answer to that being like oh it's never a good time these companies are always you know being ruthless towards (laughs) the people who work for them and we have to hold them accountable for the for the imbalance yeah so yeah i'm still learning a lot but yeah it's been moving to just like (laughs) feel everyone coming together and especially like veteran TV writers who probably are wealthy from, you know, years of having uh, network TV shows, like doing this kind of like labor for future generations of writers to be able to live a nice life as well. So I think it's worth saying just for the listeners that like, I was reading that New Yorker piece and like, it's people who wrote shows that are like critically acclaimed and very successful who are still struggling. This is not like people have an idea like everybody in Hollywood is like living high on the hog, but like these writers are not <laughs> at all. That's not how it works. Especially now, just because you write on a successful show, it doesn't mean that you're actually not poor anymore. Like the writer from the bear, I think was a, a prime example. Well, maybe one last question, then we'll close things out. You've mentioned all the reasons for a strike. What can people on the outside do to be helpful? Or or just what would you hope they understand beyond what you've said already? The only thing they know about is like something they like isn't on TV. You know, what would you hope they understand beyond that? I think the thing that I didn't understand until I came to LA and lived in LA is how much it really is a town of all kinds of people working all kinds of union jobs to make the entertainment industry work. And that's everybody from, you know, the Teamsters who are doing transport to the actors, to the writers, to people doing the electricity, to the costumes, to hair and makeup, like driving around my neighborhood. It's all just like union halls for different entertainment unions. And I think something that's really worth understanding is that the way that that works is that you can really make a long-term life here 
because those jobs are union jobs. Um, it's an industry that attracts a lot of, you know, excited, wide-eyed young people who want to be a part of something cool, but they're able to stay in it for decades and have families and live lives because those jobs are unionized. So the Writers Guild is dealing with the particular pressures on writers right now, but everybody in all the other unions, IATSE almost struck last year, it's affecting everybody who works in this constellation. And I think this time, especially, I really feel like all the other unions have the writers backs and we also have the backs of the people in the other unions. So we're all trying to work together to make sure that this kind of life remains possible. And I recognize that there are not necessarily a ton of towns now that look like this, where you can drive down the street and see half a dozen union halls, but we are able to do this and it is working and it's special for us. You know, if, if you are frustrated that your main street does not look like this, like what can we do to also, you know, organize your town? <laughs> because I see the way that it makes a difference in everybody's life on set. Totally. Yeah. Well, it's just like what Will was saying is that like everything that's been won is because there was a union, because there was solidarity. Like nobody wants to pay anybody to do anything <laughs> and you have to fight for it. And it's a union town and you have to fight to keep making a union town. And like, I'm really encouraged to hear that. So It is amazing to be sort of jolted out of the normal rhythm that, you know, this growth obsessed capitalistic society plugs us into and to sort of suddenly be invited into a totally different way of seeing things and and doing things um it, it's like it, it's it's disruptive you know in in a really mind expanding way and so i think what i would say to anyone who doesn't really get it is to just learn about uh like what can happen when people come together like this and talk to a system that seems unchangeable well this was so fun I know. Thank you both so much. Thanks for having us on. It's so fun. Yeah. My thing I was going to say, we should just have referred to me by my married name throughout the episode for maximum uh, succession confusion. What's your married name? My husband's last name is Wamsgans. No. <laughs> oh, my God. I can't believe we almost ended the episode without you revealing that. This is blowing my mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you both so much. This was so much fun. Yes. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye.